1: Only from Rustolium.
2: Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit LondonReviewBookshop.co.uk forward slash events.
3: All right. All right then. Well it's a huge honor again just to be just on a personal note with Julia. Julia is an LGBTQ hero of mine, someone who's educated me on the issue of trans rights as she has as a pioneering trans author over the last few years in a very difficult period with an escalating anti-trans moral panic, which the media and increasingly our politicians have whipped up, her writing is always so humane, so, so lucid, so full of integrity, so uh, challenging and uncompromising when it comes to taking on power and bigotry. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna have a chat to begin with and I'm, I'm full of anticipation here because I know you were gonna, when we were downstairs you were choosing which piece you were gonna start with we're going to start with a little reading from Juliet and then we'll, then we'll carry on the conversation, so hit us with
0: it.
2: Yeah, um, I'm actually going to read from the introduction to the book, which is uh, one of the few bits of it that's not been published anywhere previously. So even if you've read everything I've ever published like a hawk uh, over the last 15 years, you won't be familiar with this. So I think that's good. I think it's democratic. Um, uh, yeah, and I, I think it just, you know, it sort of sets out my stall, what my sort of journalistic project uh, was about, really, my approach to journalism. And then I think that's probably a better bet than any specific piece. So I'll just start from the beginning. I never believed any journalism was objective, nor that there was any point in even trying to be. I didn't simply conceive of journalism as a way to advance a political position. I always thought that one should be flexible on this, uh, being prepared to shift if the facts necessitate it. Although the rampant inequality and injustice of 21st century Britain means that I've barely moved since I was a teenager, scrawling hammers and sickles across my notebooks, partly because it seemed to annoy everyone I wanted to annoy. Um, I still do that. Um, But I did think journalism could be a good forum to propagandize for the things I cared about, Uh, my tastes in literature and film, music and art, which are often quite obscure, And for the rights and representation of trans people who I rarely saw speaking in their own voices or on their own terms. I wrote extensively about my experiences of seeing trans and non binary people in print and broadcast media during my youth and how I became part of a generation of writers who were trying to change that media in Trans and Memoirs, published by Verso in 2015. And yes, over there. Um, That book also discusses my decision to document my transition in my Transgender Journey series, which ran in The Guardian from June 2010 to November 2012, as part of an attempt to challenge that paper's historically poor trans coverage, Uh, the alienation that I then felt from the journalistic circles that this drew me towards, and the psychological implications of being so public about one's private life. So I don't do that again here journalism is repetitive enough already, as maybe Owen can testify, uh, demanding that one keep saying whatever the discourse demands of you at any given point. Uh, but I do want to talk about my time as the transgender journalist, as I was half jokingly called on a panel about trans people in the media with Ros Caveney and CN Lester in 2011. And the tension between wanting to focus on art and culture and needing to counter the dishonest and damaging things that were being published about us in virtually every national newspaper discussed that year by Transmedia Watch at the Leveson Inquiry. So I fell into that role because I kept using the platform I found in mainstream media to advocate a particular cause. Uh, I've divided them into sections here, but this made my writing about politics and culture quite hard to separate, not least because lots of that writing was about the media itself, uh, which is a place where politics and culture quite obviously meet. Um, The question about objectivity or opinionizing applies differently to different types of journalists. Reporters are supposed to be objective, columnists give opinions, uh, and critics are meant to approach things objectively and then give opinions. Um, What I first thought about going into journalism as an undergraduate back in 2002 Uh, I wanted to be a critic, hoping to make a living from uh, my interest in the arts. Historically, this has never been easy, but back then it still looked just about plausible. Uh, I ended up becoming a reporter, columnist and critic simultaneously, uh, largely because the internet broke the industry's financial model, which meant that aspiring writers had to become more versatile and the boundaries between these categories essentially collapsed. But even if I wanted to be a journalist, mainly to fund my more creative writing, always took it seriously, uh, unlike some of the generation above who just seemed to revel in the generous salaries for their columns, or some of my contemporaries who saw easy money in uh, becoming mouthpieces for conservative or corporate interests, uh, a gig that was especially lucrative if they were from minority backgrounds or if they claimed to be anti-establishment in some way. Uh, Whatever journalism I wrote, I thought the point was not just to chronicle our times but to try to change them. So I'll stop there.
3: So I'm always interested in the background of North. And I think LGBTQ people always have a particular interest in each other's backgrounds and, and how that influenced this I mean, you, you describe your suburban conservative home when you grew up and then you swapped it for England's most queer-friendly cities, the People's Republic of Manchester, Brighton, London. And you grew up, you're a geriatric millennial like myself, um, uh, under Section 28. Yeah. So just tell, tell me a bit about that. Growing up, as you say, in a suburban conservative home, LGBTQ issues couldn't talk about those at school, and a lack of kind of representation and information, I suppose.
2: Yeah, I mean, there wasn't just Section 28, you know, we barely, I mean, the internet became a thing. My parents were always been quite early adopters of broadcast and communications technology. Um, like, we nearly got BSB, that's how early we were in with, like, satellite television. Um, welcome to the middle class. Um, and... Um, Like, we had the internet quite early on, about 1995 or so, I think. So, you know, that was when I was in my early teens. And that was really a lot of my source of info on just finding actual real trans people who maybe lived nearby, who I could actually have, like, email discussions with. I'd email them one week. They'd email me back the next week. You know, you could get a dialogue going. Um, And um, that was very important because there was no meaningful conversation about LGBT issues in our school, um, because of Section 28. We had one discussion about homosexuality in an RE lesson where um, Mr. Buck, the RE teacher, came in about two weeks before we were going to do our GCSEs. And he just says, like, I've got to show you a video today. And it's about these two boys who are, um, well, they're, um, they're, um, they're homosexual. And um, this kid called Bill, who'd been made to sit at the front, just put his hand up and said, Mr. Bart, Mr. Bart, can I ask a question? And he's quite relieved. And he was like, sure, Bill, what is it? And he just went, what's a homosexual? Um, so we had to watch the video to find out. And it was about like, these two boys who ran away camping. It was from about 1971. Um, and that was all we got. Uh, so like, a lot of my animus as a writer and a journalist has been to try and make sure that no one ever has to grow up exactly like that again. Um, You know, if you're being brought up in Surrey, I can't do that much for you. But, like, um, you know, I I, I can write things that you can, like, access on on the internet. Um, And and yes, Section 28 was a very different time. I mean, the other thing was, like, just staying up until about one in the morning to watch something like Priscilla Queen of the Desert on Channel 4, uh, because it was, like, the only kind of vague, vaguely sort of sympathetic education I could find about what our lives might be like. I mean, that was kind of all we had, really. So yeah, a lot lot of my writing has been trying to, you know, deal with that sort of situation. Um, And then, you know, I actually broke into mainstream media in 2010 with the series for The Guardian. And by 2010, there was a sort of almost opposite problem, which was there was so much information online, but there wasn't really, you know, the internet had this promise to kind of, you know, make, information horizontal to democratize the media, and to sort of theoretically make, you know, one person's kind of blog or GeoCity site or whatever, you know, theoretically on the same level as, I don't know, the Murdoch media empire or something. But in practice, you know, that's not really how it had panned out by that point. Um, and we were still, you know, largely invisible within mainstream media, I think. Uh, you know, section 28 had gone. Um, the Equality Act had come in, which made some improvements for, um, for trans people, you know, in the workplace and in, in other uh, parts of society. Gender Recognition Act had come in, which again, you know, was truncated in some ways, uh, but was a sort of legal advance. I think lots of trans people had the same idea at the same time. Um, Transmedia what formed in 2009. There were writers like CN Nesta, Ros Caveney, Paris Lees, various others, all trying to like break into mainstream media, because we all sort of thought, okay, some big legal battles have been won now the thing to do is try and stop the media doing us so much damage. Um, And I always knew it was gonna be like kicking a hornet's nest. Um, You know, I mean, especially doing the Transgender Journey series for The Guardian, which, you know, when it did cover trans issues, it wasn't really trans writers talking about it. It was like um, second wave feminists, really, writing from like an anti-trans position. Um, And they weren't doing it very often because they didn't really need to. You know, this was the kind of unspoken and only occasionally spoke an ideological position of those papers on these issues. Um, so, making the decision to not argue directly with them, but to try and change the terms with a journalistic project that said, look, this is what our lives are actually like, uh, I mean, that was a provocation, really. And, you know, in hindsight, it was a bit of a high wire act to tag a lot of like more widespread trans acceptance to the issue of whether or not people liked me personally. And anyone who knows me will testify to the folly of that, I think. Um, but, but, you know, this, this provocation, I think, had to be made. And to be honest, I have been kind of surprised at the level of the backlash. And it just shows how much I like, overestimated Britain's media, like, liberal establishment. That I thought more of them would sort of look at this and say, "Oh yeah, actually," and you know, this is a space that the writing opened up for other kind of subject matters and other trans and queer and non-binary writers. And uh, you know, some of these sort of like liberals might look at that and think, "Oh, actually, okay, like these people's lives are you know harder than we realized. Maybe we can reorient the discourse around changing that." And uh, that's not how it turned out.
3: So we'll talk about what I think we can describe as the full-blown moral panic but I mean, you write quite a lot about the Leveson Inquiry, which mm. was back in 2011, not long after you became a public writer. Yeah. And that said itself, there was a marked tendency in a section of the press to fail to treat members of the transgender and intersex communities with sufficient dignity and respect. So there was already, wasn't there, it's not like we could look at what's happened, particularly since 2018, perhaps, yeah, yeah, as a real explosion. But no, it's not this, like...
2: this stuff was always there, and there were two different strands of media transphobia. And one was um, the one that really got focus on the Leveson Inquiry, which was tabloid newspapers um, often kind of like outing individual trans people, you know, dead naming them, publishing before and after photos, you know, literally rooting through their bins, uh, which is obviously you know wider behaviour that was exposed by the Leveson Inquiry, which was I think the la- well you know it's one of those moments in British political history. Where I thought surely everything changes now, you know, it's like this massive scandal. You know, the leaders of the sort of top echelons of both the main major political parties uh, were very complicit in it. The police, the press, you know, what you might think of as the deep state, all kind of complicit in these extraordinary levels of like corruption, of bullying of the public. Um, uh, and, you know, of this sort of revolving door between them. And I thought, surely everything changes after this, like, huge inquiry and some of the revelations that came out in the Leveson inquiry. Uh, there's not really time to, like, relitigate them all here. Um, but it was one of the things that made me think that Tom Watson might be all right. Um, because he... he yeah, uh, yeah no, I got that wrong. Um, big theme of tonight is me getting things wrong. Um... <laughs> By my be- is your turn? Yeah, well, quite. Um, we all need to do public software. <laughs> um, the Maoists are right, it turned out. Um, but um, you know, Leveson inquiry really should have changed everything. And of course, you know, after about a year of uh, hearing quite extensive evidence um, about you know phone hacking about you know potentially criminal activity uh, within the British um, press, Serious intrusions of privacy and so forth. You know, the recommendation that ended up coming out of the Leveson Inquiry, like a couple of like low-level people went to prison for a short period. But the main recommendation was maybe the press should try a bit harder to regulate itself. Um, it didn't. But that really should have been a watershed moment.
3: In, in terms of the moral panic, then, so the Women Inequality Equality Select Committee was it in 2017? So I, just realized
2: I didn't actually finish answering. Oh, sorry, no, go for it. Go that. So, so there was this sort of this strand in tabloid. Mm-hmm. Media uh, that was largely to do with kind of demonizing and bullying individual members of the public. The strand in sort of broadsheet, sort of nominally liberal media, was much more kind of attacking like trans people as a group, framing trans activism, which was usually just people saying, look, our lives aren't great. How about we do this, this, and this to make them easier? Um, that media sort of framing that trans activism as like inherently unreasonable. Um, and you know, kind of bullying, um, and I think the nexus of both of those responses, both of those strands, you know, is a fear of being held to account, a fear of youth, a fear of um, you know, a fear of kind of difference, um, but also a fear of sort of changes to the social order. Um, and obviously, you know, in some ways, the way the media responded to the trans presence at the Leveson Inquiry and trans presence in mainstream liberal media. Uh, was a bit of a dry run for how it responded to, you know, the left leading the Labour Party with a, um, you know, with a greatly expanded mass membership, um, and often it was the same people responding in the same way with with kind of horror at this sort of democratic involvement in political and media institutions um, and the representation of people within those institutions who they just didn't like the look of.
3: So in terms of the, the panic. so. The Women and Equality Select Committee published a list of recommendations about making the lives of trans people easier, and that was 2018, I think, wasn't it? And So there was this whole list of options, and the point, I know John Fay, here I'm sure many of you all know, is the brilliant author of The Transgender Issue. Absolutely
2: essential reading. Um,
3: And she said, well, basically, Theresa May wanted to do something at the time, like David Cameron and Equal Marriage, Mm. to kind of a symbolic thing. But the other recommendations involved money, like reforming healthcare, mm. uh, you know, so to, to improve access for trans people's healthcare. So they went for the gender recognition act because it didn't make any, it didn't cost anything to do that. Yeah. Um, that then was a trigger point, wasn't it, for an absolute explosion? What, what? How do you explain what happened there? I mean, partly, I mean, David Cameron put through equal marriage, uh,
2: really, in the face of a lot of the Tory party membership, um, a lot of the Tory membership. Didn't want them to do that, and obviously it did intensify a real split in the Conservative Party um, at the time uh, between you know these sort of more sort of socially progressive uh, kind of Tories who you know would still you know kind of deport immigrants, but they'd like paint a rainbow flag on the plane that took them out, um, and then the ones who didn't want to do that. Um, But but Cameron just kind of forced it through, basically. You know, sort of saw this as this sort of a bit like Blair with Section Twenty Eight. To be honest, I mean, there was a piece in the Guardian this week saying David Blunkett uh, advised Tony Blair not to force through the repeal of Section Twenty Eight because, of course, he did. Um, uh, So, so, you know, there was was sort of aspect of both Blair and Cameron uh, with these kind of these gay rights um, pieces of legislation, which, like I said, didn't cost anything. Uh, just forcing it through a party that didn't necessarily unite behind it. Uh, Theresa May put the gender recognition act reforms out to public consultation, um, so it became like a real um, rallying point for this kind of brewing transphobic backlash, which you know, as we talked earlier, like has roots going back to about the 70s. It's not not a new thing, um, but it gave a real kind of focal point for opponents of trans rights to say, well, look, we're not anti-trans per se. We just don't think they should have any more rights than they've got now. Um, and um, so, you know, this sort of reaction against, like, self ID for for trans people, against a sort of reduction in the involvement of psychiatric um, processes and staff in the process of transition um, of the opening up of um, of non-binary identities that would be recognised, you know, legally and available as options on people's passports and things. Um, you know, a lot of the backlash—it gave a focal point of a kind of legal battle to that backlash, really. Um, which you know, if she just kind of forced it through, probably wouldn't have happened in quite the same way. Um, and obviously, by this point as well, you have a lot of people like myself, really, sort of you know, trans and non-binary writers and journalists. Just by this point, kind of exhausted with the whole thing already. You know, by this point, I've been plugging away at this for seven or eight years. I was doing a PhD. I just, you know, personally, I couldn't stand to be on the the front line anymore. And that's where the title of the the book comes from this sense that it was just like a sort of constant battle, as well as, you know, the allusion to, you know, kind of headlines and and journalistic culture. Um, So, You know, there was a sort of conscious effort to just kind of overwhelm us out of the discourse, really, Um, which was done very successfully. You know, I mean, the Guardian uh, published a leader saying, "You know, there's a conflict between trans rights and women's rights, um, and we need to listen to both sides." And lots of trans people said, "Well, look, you know, we don't feel this is a conflict, actually." Um, And there was the astonishing spectacle of the American Guardian. I think two days later. Publishing an editorial calling its parent paper transphobic, basically, and saying, Look, we're trying to um, commission writers to write about what Donald Trump is doing to trans rights in America, is basically trying to mandate trans people out of existence, um, but we can't get anyone to do it because nobody wants to write for The Guardian. And there was, you know, a kind of semi official trans boycott of The Guardian. By that point, as there had been for the New Statesman for several years already.
3: And an internal letter as well by members of the Guardian staff.
2: Yeah, exactly. So, you know, these battles were were playing out within these publications. You know, it's not as clear cut. Um, They're sites of contestation, and the Guardian in particular. And I always thought that was worth making a site of contestation in a way that now I just don't really. Um, You know, I'd rather write elsewhere, either for left platforms. Like I write a lot for like Tribune, the New Socialists, Navarra, like all places that have made a point of saying like we are trans inclusive. Um, Or writing about the arts, more actually finding that a more interesting space to write, and you know a way in which I think I can usefully respond to this moral panic because I think if we, you know, the whole point of my journalistic project back in 2010. Was to open up the parameters on which we could write, and to give a space to write about our communities, our history, culture, creativity, uh, because the discourse back then was just like, you know, basically undermining the terms on which we identified and which we tried to live. Um, and there's been a very concerted effort to just pour, force the conversation back onto those subjects. And that's how culture war works, right? Is you like pin, you know, you don't, you never, you're not going to win a culture war. Um, and the point isn't to win. The point is to just sort of pin the other side into terrain that is very hard for them to escape from um, and you know, in this case they had much heavier artillery than, than we did. You know, trans people did not have control of any of the sort of means of, of media production and certainly not any media production that you know, is consumed on a mass scale.
3: John M- Byrne Murdoch who is a stats journalist at the Financial Times. Um, he did this really interesting graph, and it was about anti-migrant sentiment in Britain. Mm. He made the point there's no correlation between levels of immigration and anti-migrant sentiment at all. Yeah. And in fact, anti-migrant sentiment in Britain has actually steeply declined, but immigration is higher than ever. Yeah. Um, but there is a very direct correlation between negative media coverage mm. and um, anti-migrant coverage. And I say that because polling's been released today by YouGov, which does show a significant deterioration in attitudes. but mm. It is still striking, really striking, the gender divide is very acute. Uh, should trans women use cha- uh, women's changing rooms? Women are 12 points more likely to say yes than men. 28 uh, men say should, 50% say no. Women, 40% yes, 30% no. Use women's toilets, 14 points higher for your woman. Use Women's Refuges for Victims of Rape Assault, 13 points higher. Use Women's Changing Rooms, 9 points higher. I mean, it goes on. It's... um, What... I mean, what what do you make of that? Um,
2: I mean, firstly, I just want to pick up a little thing about what you said about immigration. I think a lot of the polling there is because issues around immigration just got subsumed into Brexit, um, which I think maybe sort of explains that surprising, on the face of it, polling disparity. Um, I mean, in terms of the polling you mentioned there, um, I hadn't actually seen the, the gender breakdown. What I had seen, uh, and this is not to answer a different question to the one you asked, because I would never do that, but... Um, I do that all the
3: time, so fill your um,
2: Yeah, no, I'd love a beer right now, thanks. Um, <laughs> and um, Yeah, uh, sorry, it's so hot I can barely think. Um, my hometown was the hottest town in Britain. Ever for a brief period yesterday. Aww. And so, uh, yeah, we're finally number one. <laughs> Give it up for RH6. Um, so I wrote to my mum and said, like, RH6 is now the hottest place in British history. And my mum wrote back and said, no, that's our house. And I wrote back and said, mum, your house is in RH6. <laughs> and she wrote back saying, that's true. Um, let get a bit more of my background in there. Um, I mean, that, that polling, yeah, I mean, it is interesting because, you know, the. The liberal publications uh, and the sort of right wing broadsheets, so, you know, I'm thinking the, Gu- the Guardian, The Statesman, The Times, The Telegraph, would all have you believe that, like, the very existence of trans people, and particularly the existence of trans people in public space, is like a massive threat to the ability of, like, cisgender women to go about their daily life safely. Um, and the statistics there, in terms of public opinion, don't correlate no, to that. There's a, big uh, there's a big gap there, despite you know this absolutely full frontal propaganda assault that we've just been talking about. Um, so what I think that media coverage does is set the terrain for mainstream politicians, and we have you know the two factions that are currently at the head of the two major political parties. Firstly they're the most right-wing factions of those parties within Labour and the Conservatives Uh, and secondly they're both very much like led by the media Um, and if as the polling suggests like Liz Truss becomes prime minister um, you know I mean Liz Truss did float in summer 2020 the prospects of basically legislating to ban like trans people from any public space that match the gender that they'd you know, we live under. Um, And that didn't happen. Um, And, you know, if you're thinking about it in terms of realpolitik, you know, maybe she was just sort of trying to kind of set the terrain to have watered down Gender Recognition Act reforms, which is kind of what we got after quite a lot of protests. Um, But obviously, you know, what this does do is just make our day-to-day lives, like, feel more oppressive and more unpleasant. Um, I don't know if we've got any like veterans of the like anti-gay moral panic from the mid '80s, um, but anyone I think who's familiar with queer history in this country will be aware of just some of the extraordinary stuff that was published, you know, across again across the board um, in Britain in the 1980s in the wake of like the HIV and AIDS um, epidemic, um, and what's happening now feels very similar. And it's really an attempt to sort of lay the stage for an attack on on our legal rights to roll back some of those uh, legal victories talked about earlier uh, and certainly stop them uh, from being improved any further as far as we see it. Um, And it looks like that's gonna be successful. I mean, you know, the polling for the Conservative Party membership, Conservative Party members, I mean, these are like, you know, the reddest, angriest people in the country, not red in the good way, like just literally the reddest people in the country um, contorted with hatred. and 3% of them, I think, said that trans issues are important to them. Um, you know, like I spoke to my mum a few days ago, um, and she asked who I thought was going to win, and I said, I really don't know. Um, and she said, do you, do you think they're going to be bad for trans people? Like, what do you think they're going to do? And I said, well, I think whoever wins is going to make attacks on our legal rights, because all of their kind of backing in the media depends on them doing that. Yes. Um, and we are basically just governed by the press at this point. And that was something I was hoping the Leveson Inquiry might change. Um, and it's actually, you know, it's just got much worse in the intervening
3: decade, I think. I mean, you made that parallel, you know, between the anti-trans moral panic and the anti-gay moral panic. And it, I mean, it is striking, isn't it? Threats to children, brainwashing children to recruit them, uh, would-be sexual predators, biology is destiny, it's a fetish, it's defined by a mental illness. Uh, Why should the majority have to redefine themselves for a time? So I'm just interested, you know, and I remember the first time I ever wrote about this issue, I interviewed you for it back in 2015. It's that question, why is LGBTQ solidarity so important? And since I asked you that question back in 2015, the so-called LGB Alliance, the most painfully straight organization in history, has been set up to try and literally divide LGB and, you know, and for our generation, the idea of saying LGB just doesn't, you can't really just stop it. It's such a bizarre kind of attempt. But why is it so important?
2: Uh, I mean, the answer I gave to you at the time was a quote from someone at one of my events who got asked this and said, because we get beaten up by the same people. Um, But it's that simple. Like, you know, if somebody sort of hassles me in the street, which doesn't happen that much anymore because I learned you could deal with it by just not going out. Um, And then, like, COVID happened and, you know, everyone was doing that. I'm just kind of ahead of the game. But, like... um, you know, nobody sort of stops to ask exactly the sort of nature of my like place within the LGBT spectrum and then my place within the sort of trans spectrum uh, before they, you know, either inappropriately proposition me or threaten to beat the hell out of me. Um, that just sort of doesn't happen. Um, so, on that basic level, the solidarity is very important. And, you know, um, it feels very obvious to me watching this stuff play out in the US that, you know, an anti trans. Panic is an attack on bodily autonomy, and so I think it's a way of also um, preparing the terrain for an attack on, like, women's reproductive rights, because exactly what's happened in the U.S. recently, uh, and again, has been you know the ultimate goal of the American far right for quite a long time. Um, you know, it can contribute to greater kind of homophobia and misogyny within society. Um, even if I'm not necessarily expecting any more like homophobic legislation, but again you know five ten years time, who knows um, if this isn't checked uh, if this tide isn't turned um, and it is kind of worrying seeing how few people within mainstream politics now are really willing to stand up for, for the trans community in particular. Um, that's 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 a real concern, I think, um, because I'm not quite sure what a kind of large, meaningful opposition is going to cohere around. Um, and you know, again, sort of ten years after the Levison inquiry, um, a lot of people in our sort of media political complex, which is what we're kind of governed by, uh, have realised that they can just deal with you know the left and people on Twitter uh, by just kind of ignoring us really and saying, well, that's just
3: happening over there. That's the sewer. Don't pay attention to it. Um, Before I bring in the audience, just finally, I mean, you write so so many of your essays about the arts. You write about J.T. LeRoy, the literary persona, or avatar, whatever you are going to describe it of U.S. writer Laura Albert, the Serbian conceptual artist Marina Abramovic. Why is it so important to you? Why, is it, you know, as a as a trans writer, as an LGBTQ writer, to write about such a broad range of artistic, cultural issues? Um,
2: I mean, firstly, it's just what I'm most interested in, um, and what I'm most passionate about. Um, You know, I spend a lot of time watching, like, weird video art that even I don't enjoy. Um, And it basically feels like work even when I'm doing it for pleasure, so I need to make money out of it somehow. I teach at the Royal College of Art now. Um, A bit more positive than this in most of my tutorials. But, um, like... You know, I think, as I said earlier, you know, there's this real effort to sort of set the terms so that, you know, anti trans writers set the terms. They say, look, you know, your identities are invalid. You know, all the things you talked about, you know, you're threatening our children and you're ruining the women's sports competitions that we were really, really passionate about before. We've always been very interested in. um, You know, you're forcing Graham Linehan to eat carbonara on his own. all sorts of crimes against humanity. Um, but you know, there needs to be spaces for like joy. Um, and you know, it's, it's a good way of um, of like, yeah, kind of, you know, providing an alternative and saying to like younger trans people, no, you don't just have to be defined by that argument, the transgender debate as, um, as a lot of our media would have it. And you know, you can, Either you know use your identity to create things that are kind of strange or beautiful or funny, um, or you can do something else entirely. You know, from a trans perspective, that brings an interesting perspective to something that you know, on the face of it, has nothing to do with with trans issues. And there's a few essays in here where I do exactly that. Um, there's a long piece about a computer game from 1986 that I think is my favourite thing in the book. Um, and playing that as like a trans person and, and trying to find a space for myself within it or imagining what it might have looked like. Um, so it's a good way of sort of subtly working around those kind of terms and doing something positive, I think. Um, you know, One of the ways in which we lose is if we, if we just give up on joy and give up on community and give up on creativity um, and just fight this like cultural war of attrition. Um, and also they don't really know what to do with it. You know, if I were to write a kind of really aggressive, assertive piece saying, like, no trans identities are valid, screw you, they'll come back with a piece saying, no, they aren't, screw you, um, which is about the level of, you know, the discourse that I was being expected to participate in. Um, But, you know, if I write a piece saying, here's a really interesting piece by the American artist Juliana Huxtable that engages with, like, Nubian spiritual beliefs in a really intriguing way, I don't really have anything for that. And that's you know that's that's an asset I think that's 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 useful. Um, also, like arts audiences are just less aggro. They're not on Twitter like screaming at me all the time. Um, arts publications like pay better and like you know send me more interesting places. Um, just nicer like on every level like writing about the arts is just nicer uh, than writing about politics. Um, I mean we still need to write about politics, and you know I do continue to do it. Although, I mean, I don't, I mean, the trouble is, everything's in such a state now. You know, in that sort of interregnum, particularly like 2017 to 19, I kind of thought, well, there's possibilities opening up. Things might go our way, they might not. I mean, I often think of like that bit in the day-to-day where like the Queen and the Prime Minister have a fight, and it's such a serious constitutional crisis that the guy could only sum it up in a sound. (laughs) Um, And I kind of feel like that, just writing about British politics now. It's like, like my mum just said, like, how you feel about all the politics. I just kind of went like, (laughs) Uh, uh. (laughs) for about 20 minutes. It's
1: like a Stuart Lee gig. Um,
3: Very articulate.
1: Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side?
3: Let's bring in you, the audience. Yeah. So who, wants to be, who wants to kick off? I'll do two at a time, I think. We've got a roving mic. Very exciting. We've got like 20 minutes for questions. We've got something? 20 minutes. We've got cool. 20 minutes. And then Juliet will be signing. So we can always talk to Juliet then as well. Don't be shy. I know we're very intimidating. Come on. Yeah. Oh, two. We've got two. Got okay. two. All
2: right. They're next to each other. Who, so you who have was one.
1: over here? Can I do you two? And then... Oh, Hi. So you talked a little bit about, um, in the stats there, the gender breakdown in the responses to, you know, does it bother you if trans women use women's toilets and things, um, and you've mentioned a couple of times age. And so I just wondered whether, when Juliet you were talking about, thinking about five to 10 years time, and you kind of went <laughs> um, You know, is there actually any optimism thinking about the age, the difference in opinion, when it comes to age and what the voting public might look like in mm. ten years' time, um, and obviously it's a wider problem for the Tory Party. Um, but you know, if they are putting their eggs in this kind of basket, then surely there's a there's a bit of a time bomb there for them.
3: Well, I mean, I think they'll be
2: saved oh, by want, the Labour oh, Party. Um, oh sorry. Hold uh on. no,
3: no, do the other question and uh, we'll oh, yeah. Oh yeah, we'll bring out. the both. So, yeah. was, was it you been functional? Or oh, was it another one? Oh, we'll come to you afterwards. I okay. guess it's a
1: little bit related. Um it's about optimism as well. I, I was wondering if you had any I don't know, hope for the international community in terms of like people that come from very uh religious, fanatical countries, Latin American is the example I can give, because it's where I'm from, do you see any turn in the culture um, towards an acceptance of the reality of what we're living? Because I I live here in London, but I am from Guatemala, and uh, obviously I share everything you're uh, sharing, but then I go back, and it's almost as if I have to translate not f- even from a human language, you know? So um, I don't know, it's, I just, I'm i looking for a glimmer of hope, you know, or how to, <laughs> I don't know.
2: OK, so it's two questions asking me to be optimistic. Um, OK, I worry I've not conveyed myself efficiently. Um, no, 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 there, there, are, there are cautious causes for optimism. I think. I mean, first question was sort of asking about, you know, sort of Tory vote and demographics, because it was very notable how much, yeah, the 2019 election, you know, under 45s, overwhelmingly Labour, over 65s, overwhelmingly Tory, um, 45s to 65s being like, well, I would vote Labour, but mm, so I can't, Um, and voted Lib Dem. so on the Facebook, you think there would be some demographic hope there. Uh, what we have to reckon with there is the Labour right uh, and their ability to, you know, wrench defeat from the jaws of victory and, you know, induce pessimism and despair where there should be optimism. Um, because, you know, on the trans issue, you know, Rachel Reeves are austerity Adult shadow chancellor has come out in the last couple of days and basically taken a kind of gender-critical position, Um, and, you know, Keir Starmer isn't going to say anything, Um, and maybe that's the best, because then you just have to hear his voice Um, and the things that he says. Um, So, you know, for a lot of younger people, I think, like, trans rights is a deal-breaker, actually, in a way that... I think, I mean, what the Labour right don't understand would, you know, be here all night. But um, I think it's one of the many, many things they haven't really grasped. Um, So it'd be interesting to see if that shifts probably after the next election, I think, more than
3: this one. Because the polling is, again, you're right, the polling on age is very, very stark indeed. I mean, under 25, very much pro. And again, it's younger women uh, who are the most pro and older men who are the most against.
2: Yeah, so, you know, there there is some hope for... For some sort of demographic shifts, but you know, the left, I think, has often looked to demographic shifts for hope, and it's not always been rewarded. Like, there's still quite a lot of work to do. Um, you know, these positions won't shift on their own. You know, it takes interventions into public culture, I think. Um, and I mean, in terms of like the broader international climate, yeah, I mean, the last, since about 2014 15, you know, it's really looked very, very bleak. I mean, you know, there's been, again, a lot of these uh, backlashes in specific places were brewing before, but, you know, you've seen sort of explicitly, like, often hand-in-hand, hand, like, anti-abortion and anti-LGBT like LGBT, um, or anti-feminist kind of legislation in, like, Hungary, Poland, Romania, Turkey, Russia, uh, Brazil, Kyrgyzstan, Um Nigeria, uh, you know, the list goes on and on. Um, And in the U.S., of course. Um, I mean, looking at, I mean, you know, you you, you say like Latin America, uh, and when you said Latin America, my first thought was like the pink tide in South America, at the moment, like Colombia's just elected its first like leftist president ever. Um, You know, all the polls are suggesting that Bolsonaro uh, will comfortably lose to uh, Lula um, of the sort of center-left party uh, in the next election in Brazil. Um, congratulations to Bolsonaro on getting COVID for the 500th time. Uh, I think it's good to recognize his achievement there. Um, uh, you know, in um, in Ecuador and in Bolivia, um, sort of leftist governments have managed to stay in place, uh, often in the face of like American... Um, intervention. Um, so the situation in South America, potentially there's room. Uh, and of course, having a leftist government doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, more social liberalism, uh, again, but it's, it's more likely to create the space for that kind of activism. I mean, Argentina has like one of the most progressive um, gender recognition Uruguay. acts in the world. Uruguay. And I mean, this was um, I haven't actually had a chance to read it yet, but like Red Pepper have just published uh, a piece written with people in Argentina um, about the activism that did this. And again, you know, it all comes from from people doing the work really, and whoever's in charge, that work still needs to to be done. Um, I mean, a lot of the most interesting advances I think of the seventies, sort of feminist and gay and lesbian movements and things, were people sort of saying, "Well, look, let's not be satisfied with just what we have." Um, we can always push for more. And if you stop doing that, you know, that's when the backlash hits you, I think. So,
3: You? you? Oh, no, no, in front of you. You, you had your hand up. Yes. You, and is there anyone over here? Because you're kind of a question's desert at the moment. Not to <laughs> besmirch your reputations, but come on. No, uh, so we've got <laughs> someone here. Oh, we've got someone over there. Oh, well, right, that's okay. fine. No offense taken. Sorry. Uh, go for it. Ooh,
2: um, so this is quite
3: a broad question, I guess, and quite... Oh, so you speak, um, speak a bit more, maybe into the mic. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry, I've got a really quiet voice. That's right,
2: sounds... no, we can hear now. This is quite a broad and odd question, but um, how best do you think we as like trans people or queer people can challenge a lot of like the quite anti-Semitic um, conspiracy theories that are inherent within a lot of transphobia? Because I had to read Trans by Helen Joyce the other day, Don't Ask Why, not not my best decision, Yeah. Um, and I was really shocked by how open a lot of very anti-Semitic views are, especially on like the global conspiracy and sacrificing children. Um, But it's quite hard to, every time I bring that up to people to like try and write for them, they call me kind of an insane conspiracy theorist. Um, So how best do you think we can try and begin to challenge that?
3: And then the second question, for those who didn't hear, that was about the (laughs) anti-Semitism that's often inherent anti-trans, including the spectre of George Soros often comes up as well. Yeah, Mm -hmm.
0: sorry, go for it. Mine is a mishmash of what came out of the question so pardon me if it's not coherent but I'm I'm wondering how much it came it seems to come out from the statistics that you cited that the actual discourse about trans people is not very popular even among the right it's not something that people are too invested in so what I wonder, on the one hand, why are right-wing politicians and right of labor so invested in, into um, othering trans people and make them uh, a, a vic- make them victims? Which one one answer I would have is it's a easy way into misogyny and other and yeah. other uh, sectarianism. but also it makes me wonder, as a person, as a trans person, how did your experience change in the last uh, few years or in the last couple decades? Because, as a as an outsider, as a cis man, I've seen I've seen um, the representation of trans people in uh, media. Well, <laughs> it's it's difficult to say. Well, in some of the media. Some way improve, as in, there are more trans actors, and there are uh, hist- like there are stories that are about lives of trans people, as and not lives of trans people as victims, or lives of trans people as perpetrators, or whatever. Uh, it seems like there's a big a, a big um, chasm between discourse and life itself. Mm. Like so, like as Life of a trans person improved, and that would be the optimism, or uh, is the media uh, discourse influencing everyday life? Somehow?
2: Okay, um, anti
3: Semitism first,
2: yeah, yeah. Can we come back to
3: that yeah, second? Sure, 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 um, sure.
0: so you were sort of
2: asking about just the impact of the media climate on everyday life over the last few years, and about you know, why the press and the two major parties here in particular are so obsessed with this issue in spite of the polling. Um, I mean, I'm going to take the last thing I mentioned there first, which is I think the press and the sort of Labour right and the Tory right are so obsessed with trans issues despite polling repeatedly saying that the public aren't that bothered because that's all they've got. You know, They can't meaningfully promise to improve people's lives in any way. Uh, and when somebody in politics did say, how about we use these things that we have at our disposal to make people's lives materially just less shit, uh, you know, they monstered that guy into the stratosphere and it's not gonna happen again anytime soon. Um, so, you know, that's all they've kind of got, really. Uh, and, you know, as I said earlier, they are like largely being governed by the media uh, and told what to do by the media and their legitimacy, you know, rests entirely on the media. Boris Johnson made a great case in point. His legitimacy, was entirely a confection of the media. And you know, once the like, bad jam man was out of the way uh, and they felt, right, we can like, safely destroy you now without bringing in something much worse, uh, they did exactly that, just to you know, remind him who was boss, really. Um, so you know, I think it's partly just a product of like, material conditions being so bad that there isn't, they can't answer that. But I think one reason why it doesn't poll that highly is precisely because those material conditions are so bad. Like, you know, the railways are catching fire. Like, things aren't going very well. Um, you know, things are very obviously not going very well. Like, my mum's house was the hottest place on earth. Um, I mean, she'll still vote Tory, but like, um, you know, it's, it doesn't poll very well because people, it's, it's just too obviously, you know, kind of fobbing people off with kind of spite and hate, where there should be a material basis to politics, I think. Um, And, you know, in terms of whether like trans lives have materially got better, um, I mean, it's really hard to say. I mean, I'm reasonably privileged, really. I wouldn't deny that. You know, I mean, I'm kind of white, I'm middle class, you know, educated to quite a high level and was able to access that education, um, you know, without, like, completely... You know, burdening myself with unmanageable debt for the most part, apart from the 10 grand that I haven't paid off, I guess. Um, It's fine, they're not getting that. Um, I'm a writer, they should know that. Um, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think probably, you know, in terms of some of the legal gains around discrimination at work. I think these probably have led to some improvements in people's like material existences, um, but it's still you know very possible for employers to just pass over trans people that don't want to employ us. They can't sack us just for being trans anymore. Um, but you know we'll see what this trust gets up to. Um, so, so I think there are there are some some material gains, uh, but also you know in a society that is you know getting materially worse off just more generally. So, you know, maybe it kind of balances out. Um, The question about anti-Semitism and, like, anti-trans writers, you mentioned, like, Helen Joyce Gender, as I think she's changed her name to. Um, And I haven't read that um, because I just, I don't know, as I sort of suggested earlier, life's just kind of short. Um, And, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a tricky one when people are sort of wrapping up layering kind of multiple kind of conspiracy theories and forms of discrimination one on top of the other. Um, it's quite hard to know where to start and how to unpick those arguments. I don't know, Owen, do you have any thoughts on, on this?
3: Well, I mean, as I mentioned, the specter of George Soros, who often comes up as a in the same way, kind of, you know, the, the Jews are trying to destroy the nation by importing Muslim immigrants, and he's kind of, you know, very much used for that. And they've, yeah, I mean, I, I think it makes sense in that they're often, I mean, anti Semitism is very conspiratorial mm. and is often, again, fixed on, on, on potential threats to children. Yeah. Um, so you can see how a conspiratorial worldview, which I, which I think transphobia is, is often very conspiratorial mm. in its yeah, outlook. Yeah. If you've got a conspiratorial mindset, it's very easy. Conspiratism often blends into anti Semitism. And I've just seen lots of people use respect to George Soros in a way mm. that I think is anti
2: Semitism. It's different. all great replacement theory, isn't it? Basically. Yeah.
3: I think it's a lot like that. Yes. Um, let's just do a quick because I know we need to wrap. There is a question over. Yes. Yeah. So, and I felt bad for question shaming you all, by the way. So for- forgive me for that. <laughs> yes. Great. That's perfect. Um, no pressure.
1: As, um, as uh, what can, what are, sorry, what are non LBGTQ people? Getting wrong as allies, and what are they getting right as allies? you can both answer if you want yeah you know? yeah no, I really will.
2: that's that's what um, I'd love to know. Very interesting question um, I mean, when I was trying to navigate you know being kind of implicitly at the center of the trans debate when I was like writing for the new statesman in particular in sort of twenty twelve to fourteen, I often found you know. No one ever really checked in with me and just said like Are you all right um, what would you like me to do to help and lots of people sort of you know were just sort of yelling at gender critical journalists on Twitter which like fine I mean I get why you would do that um, but you know I was sort of often trying to kind of manage these conflicts kind of behind the scenes in a way that was maybe a bit kind of quieter and subtler and you know no one ever kind of asked me what I was doing or there are any ways that they could kind of help? So, yeah, I mean, you know, if you see people at the centre of these discussions or these issues, um, then you know, offer support in public and in private. I think is you know uh, a good way to to go. Um, and yeah, I mean, you know, I think you know, sort of, there are times when it's good to defer to our voices. And it's times when it is good to like speak on our behalf. I mean like, I've always been like, one reason why I'm so into this event uh, with me, and one reason why I've been so grateful to you for a lot of the journalistic work that you do is because you know liberal quote unquote or sort of centrist publications have basically become hostile environments for trans writers now. so you know I don't have the energy or the just will to keep having these these arguments um, so, you know, we do need other people to do them on our behalf. And, you know, like Owen, you've been, like, very steadfast on that. A couple of other people at The Guardian, like the sports writer Jonathan Lewis, has been good on this, for example. Um, there are one or two other people. Um, but, but Zoe Williams as well. Uh, Zoe Williams, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, and, yeah, I'm sure there are a few others I've forgotten as well. Um, so that's, that's one way in which you can kind of be supportive, at least in terms of how these things are playing out in the media, I think.
0: Owen,
3: oh, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, oof, it's a really interesting question, isn't it, in terms of, I mean, how would I broaden that out? Um, I'm not sure. I think, obviously, the frustration I have is often, the best allies are often people who've, um, someone close to them has come out. And, um, in fact, the polling, I keep we keep talking about the divides. The biggest divide in public opinion is between someone who knows, it's the same with LGB people, but you, if you know a trans person, you're just way off the scale more likely to support trans rights than if you don't. Really interesting piece in The Independent by someone called Norman Already, who I've never had a particularly good relationship because she's a very different type of politics. She stood for Change UK. I think that kind of speaks for itself. Um, but she was very much, and self-described, quite staunch gender critical uh, person. Then her nephew came out and, that, mm. that, and she wrote a piece about how she just went through this uh, Damascene uh, conversion. And... Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's the frustration that sometimes people who are kind of passively supportive become the most supportive. Obviously, I mean, that you you can see, you know, it just shouldn't have to wait, really, should it, for for someone you're close to or you love to? Because I often think with some of the people, including self-described liberal writers, the way they write, for example, about trans people. I mean, I just think to myself, if your child had come out as trans, you would not be, you would never ever dream of writing like this. You would, but it shouldn't, you shouldn't have to wait for that kind of. Um, prose It's not always the case. Obviously, there were people who. Well, well. also, yeah, well, look, I mean, all LGBTQ people will have to pick up the pieces of other LGBTQ people whose lives have been ruined by their mm-hmm. parents, driven into, uh, you know, terrible trauma and the resulting mental distress and self-medication that comes with that, unfortunately. Parents do not always know best for their children, that's for sure. But it's definitely true that people go through that and, you know, you shouldn't have to, you know, but obviously seek out. LGBTQ people and, and, and listen and to their experiences. Just finally on that, I suppose, because we need to wrap up there, I mean, you need to sign and meet people. I, j- I just thought, just in optimism, if, if I was going to use just for gay, safe gay history in terms of why I think there's optimism is that, in, in 1983, according to the British Social Attitude Survey, 50% of people thought same-sex relations were always wrong, and another 17% said mostly. By 1987, that had got significantly worse. 67% of all people thought same-sex relations were always wrong. That was 1987, always wrong. And only 10% said never wrong. So the allied population in 1987 was 10% of gay people. Um, And it only recovered to 1983 levels by 1993. And even by the end of the 90s, 50% of people um, thought always or mostly wrong. So you could see, actually, if you were gonna be depressed in the 80s, you just go, well, things are just getting worse Mm. and worse and worse. You know, history is not linear, unfortunately. So Social- listen
2: to the Smiths. I mean that would well, be, a yeah. winter, be depressed.
3: But yeah. the moral panic was intense. I mean it was you look at the headlines, it's absolutely horrifying. They said anything and everything about gay people. So but what happened? People fought back and they struggled and they brought brought you know, they had coalitions, they uh, you know, but people suffered at huge costs, and it's a tragedy that history, you know, doesn't always repeat itself. But it does often rhyme, and you know, trans people are having a set. You know, you know, these the things will change for the better. I, I've no doubt about it. But the trauma that will be inflicted on people in mm. the meantime, but the question is, how much trauma and how much suffering till we get to a better place? With cis gay people, it was incalculable, and there are damaged LGBT uh, gay and bisexual men and women. All over the world suffering those from 40 years ago mm. but yeah I just think what gives me hope is that we have people like Juliet who as I said at the beginning educated people like myself and has educated so many other people to go out and stand up and, and fight for trans people and trans rights and it will be history will record the courage and determination and resilience of people like Juliet her brilliant writing which is inspiring other people. So take her, <laughs> take her work. Very, smooth spread, very yeah, smooth. spread the word. Make sure everyone gets a copy. But please give a huge round of applause for the absolutely phenomenal Juliet.
2: Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.